Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Kate Bright, licensed female bodyguard. Yes, I did say licensed female bodyguard, and we'll talk all about that in a moment, and founder and CEO of Umbra International Group, the secure lifestyle company. Having spent 15 years as a personal assistant to high net worth clients, it was while securing her close protection license in 2013, including training on firearms, evasive driving and Israeli martial arts, I'm being very careful in here as you'll hear later, that Kate experienced a light bulb moment. She recognised the need for a more holistic approach to security, encompassing protection against digital and reputational risk, as well as physical dangers. Kate founded Umbra in 2015, disrupting an overwhelmingly male industry with the offer of invisible security and a secure lifestyle, enabling Kate and her team to work with a wider range of clients from diverse backgrounds and extend security awareness more broadly into modern life. We'll be chatting to Kate in just a few minutes about the world of Umbra and indeed the Umbra Academy, which, amongst other work, supports ex-professional sportsmen and women entering the UK security industry. When I said licensed female bodyguard... Firstly, it's lovely to have you here. But I've jumped straight in because I was, I was excited. When I said that, and I said, well, there aren't going to be many of those. There aren't many, Kate. I met you a few years ago winning an award or something. I think it was a winning an award for something or other. Why are there so few women in this industry? Oh, my gosh, what a big question. I mean, firstly, let me geek out on, on the percentages because I always like to think I'm sort of one in a million. But literally, there are 16,000 close protection operators in the UK licensed, of which 5.75% are female So that gives you a little bit of the context as to how many women there are currently in the industry. And I did my training 10 years ago and it was at 5.25% when I asked and sort of dug into the figures about six years ago. So I'm taking the 0.5% increase as a very, very slow win. But having talked about invisible security for so long, I think there haven't been many women in security as, as a profession, perhaps because that whole phrase of you have to see it to be it. There haven't been many visible role models or or many people talking about what they do. And I think the security industry is not one that you tend to sort of hear stories about in in a sort of business context. So I think it's really struggled as a result of those those factors. When is the Euro 22 women's football moment going to happen then? What's going to change? Because this year has been a phenomenal year for men and women to enjoy winners and we love winners in England also we'd love to take them down when they've won obviously that's a different point than schadenfreude unfortunately it seems to be baked into the British psyche somewhat but assuming that it's now happening and it's been a long journey for the women's football team and sport in general and we'll come on to your connection with sport when is it people going to realize that it's sort of of course there's a physical element to this but there's much more to it and what are you doing about changing that so I mean firstly I think the lioness moment, when we look at these sort of moments of of change around the last two and a half, three years of big, big change in terms of COVID, I think we've got to break it down in terms of what we as a business are trying to achieve and the big, big sort of global goals that we have to try and encourage more people to keep themselves safe. But I think if we distill it back to this idea of invisible security, I think 
the more that we can try and encourage young people to think more broadly about a career in security, full stop, take gender out of it. But also the more that we can start to educate the sort of clients that we work with, that diversity and security and, and a, a team or security reflecting the society that it protects, as we've seen in recent events, such as the huge security operation around the Queen's funeral. When we can start to see those visible examples, I think we will then start to be able to help build pipeline. And as we know from women's sport, in particular now football, but also women's rugby, for example, who, who lag behind women's football and, and historically has football and rugby always had that sort of relationship. I think it behoves those of us that have the stories to tell to keep telling them. And, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in this to champion an industry that doesn't get championed, to open it and make it more accessible because it's never really been one industry that you would say you understand all of the different sort of tricks of the trade. But actually, we're trying to simplify it, create pathways to join the industry. And then we will start to have an industry that looks like the society that it protects. And that's really important to me because it's a much more of a sort of a bigger picture goal and one which I think in an evolving world, we can start to look at the word security, not just as a physical beast, but also the digital part of it as well. And the, the huge amount of opportunities within the world of cyber for young people. You've already won a ton of awards and been recognised by the profession. You're a Freeman of the City of London. You have an outstanding contribution to the Security Industry Award, I think, last year. And there's a whole ton of other things that the business has got. Did you think you were going to run your own thing? I read somewhere, I mean, there's no question that anyone that founds things, and I know you've got other things that you've also been involved in founding, uh, there's no question that they're self-driven and there's no question they work hard. I've got a lovely quote here, which I thought was brilliant from, I think it's your, sounds like this is your life or something, but uh, your teacher, you were nicknamed the furnace by your school teacher because you would burn through work and want to learn more. So I, I see that. I see the drive in your in the way you look, Kate, and your intensity of the way you, you look. What about this doing your own thing thing? When did that start to become a real idea to you and why? Well, people always sort of talk about the entrepreneurial journey and I've never really identified with the word entrepreneur or leader and that's something that I'm now coming to late and, and working on, particularly in terms of leadership and developing my skills sort of later in life. But I think... People sort of say, you know, you're this entrepreneur. I had to build a business because I saw and had a light bulb moment and I wanted to act upon it. But also I had to earn money. And so sort of necessity being the mother of invention, the business wasn't some sort of sat down, well thought out, five-year plan executed sort of uh, from a strategic level at all. It was, I got my close protection training. I went back to work for the, the family that I was working for at the time. And I marinated this idea of, being able to promote more widely the work of simply female operators. And that golden thread was something that then led to the development of Umbra. So I always say that Umbra set itself up. I'd love to take credit for setting it up, but it's very much evolved and very much been something that over the, the last, particularly the last three years, if you had said to me three years ago, would the business be where it is now? And you sprinkle a little pandemic in the middle of it, I would not have you know recognized the business that it is today. So I think... You know, I'm, I'm a very much a reluctant, when words like entrepreneur are thrown around, I'm very reluctant to take them on because I see, and particularly in the founder community around me, so many incredible people and so many incredible ideas. Um, I think the key part for me was right at the start of the business, I wanted this to, to make a difference. I wanted my work and my effort and my energy to have some kind of tangible output that wasn't sort of 
business or metric driven. And I think early on, I didn't, because I didn't really understand how to set up a business in the traditional way. I pushed the traditional boundaries. So for me, knowing that we could build a business that improved and increased visibility and diversity and knowing that I was in a position to bring in an industry and by that I mean the sort of private client world that I was so embedded in into this industry and all of the people that have supported me along the way I think it's just I'm very lucky that the people that I have around me in the network that I built over that 15 years prior mm-hmm. then had such a relevance to to supporting and and championing and 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 really banging the drum for me and 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 I think I've also benefited from a very much a a social media and and online ability for business owners to use those channels to to their fullest. I first had my LinkedIn profile activated in 2014 and I fully, fully accredit the LinkedIn community as being one such driver, which, you know, I will happily reach out to anybody that I see that I identify as being someone that could uh, help me and that I could help them. So, you know, this this idea that the business started in one way and evolved into another is is definitely something that I'm more and more comfortable with as we grow and and as I see the impact that we have on on the world around us. I want to pick up on the impact point and probe a little bit, but we're going to come back to you in a couple of minutes to do that. So you can have to start thinking about that question, even though I haven't given you the question yet. Right now, we're going to have a taste, though, from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions. They can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Derez, Martha Averley and Matt Robinson talk about equity, diversity and inclusion with regards to recruitment and how employers can recruit in a fair but diverse way. Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. Even if a business is acting with noble aims in terms of trying to recruit in a diverse and inclusive way, it may still be acting unlawfully by acting outside the limits set out in the Equality Act 2010. Matt, do you have any practical steps employers can take to recruit in an inclusive but lawful way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first one, which I think is something that people have been doing for a while now, is to try and use blind recruitment strategies. Studies show unconscious bias towards particular names and, you know, people going to certain universities or schools. Now, obviously, this is something that's easier to do at the beginning stages in terms of sifting CVs. But you can also look at early stage interviews in large recruitment processes where you send candidates written questions, for example, then as the process develops into face-to-face calls and meetings, you know, obviously it's not possible to continue that. But the idea is that by that point, you'll have broadened out the diversity of the pool of candidates in the later stages of the process. Another example is unconscious bias training. Now, obviously, there has been some recent negative press around unconscious bias training. I know the government don't seem to appreciate it, but I think What it can help people realize is that we all have biases and there is concern and evidence that people often want to recruit in their own image. And when your existing workforce isn't diverse in the first place, then that lack of diversity is perpetuated. So, you know, whilst it is difficult to apply in practice, I think if you ensure that people involved in these recruitment processes or promotion decisions are aware of their biases, it may increase the diversity of the candidates that are ultimately selected. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishcon Dorea. It's business. 
but it's personal. All our former business shapers are available for your delectation on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. We're so open about it, we don't mind where you go. My guest today is Kate Bright, female bodyguard and founder and CEO of Umbra International, the secure lifestyle company. You mentioned before uh, the break we were talking about impact and you said, you know, I just want to make an impact. Why, Kate? I mean, most people are happy to just go about their lives, do their business, get on with it and earn a living and all that, but not you. You said you want to make an impact. Is that? Am I right in thinking your dad received an OBE when you were little? Was that notion of kind of doing something that was recognised, do you think it was part of your DNA? Wow. Um, yes, and good research. Uh, yeah, my father was awarded an OBE when I was when I was ten, and I think that was around about the time to go back to your your other question about being the the furnace at school. I think I come from a family that's Irish Bavarian, and you cut us through and look at the DNA, and it says the word graft. Um, and you know he's first generation holes in shoes, uh, born and raised in Dagenham, and I think all four of us, so my my three other siblings and I, all do very different things. Um, and I think that's that's good as well because as a family we're incredibly supportive of one another's endeavours. So I think with that graft and with that sort of furnace, it took me a long time to actually find my purpose, my mission. And I think a furnace without a, a, a mission is just a furnace. Um, and so through my first career, as I call it, I knew that there was something that was really special about working with the sort of clients that I get to work with. And the sort of world that I was exposed to was definitely not one that I was you know, had experienced growing up. My father's OBE was for machine tool engineering. So he barely, you know, understands the terminology and the sort of UHNWI and some of the high net worth acronyms that we we use these days. And I think this this idea that something that you create can be bigger than you, and I won't use the word legacy because I've actually stopped using that. I think it's about what you do when you're here. It's not about building something so that you've got a nice tombstone that looks pretty. And so actually, as I was building the business, it, it just transpired that I could work with people that I loved and people that I was inspired by being around. And you consider the sort of people that me being around, not from a military background, I'm exposed to people from really elite parts of military and agency and royalty protection. You know, I had to up my game. And so I think as a result of growing the business, I saw very quickly that I was in a quite a unique position to be a sort of a kind of conduit almost as a business to help others to either come into an industry or find their, as I call it, the ikigai, that sort of Japanese word of where your mission, your purpose, your your very essence of why you're put on the planet. When you find that as a human, it's at once really overwhelming, but also it gives you an underlying reason to get out of bed, reason to push through COVID, reason to uh, you know look at how in chaos you can try and sort of keep that that clarity and that vision. And for me, it just distilled into what is now the Umbra Academy. And for me, it's become even more important than growing the business. I feel the yin and the yang of having the business, but also the academy, is something that sits really naturally and really well around, obviously, being very commercially minded and wanting to grow this. You know, I didn't put the word international on Umbra just for the fun of it. You know, we're an international business and I want to grow it and I want to keep it that way. But it soon transpired, as I say, that there was this this conduit, this this opportunity to do more, be more, help more people. And so those four strands for me are now really important. And particularly working with younger and younger people within our organization, but also, uh, as I said before, bringing people into an industry for the first time, helping people to transition from 
military backgrounds and identifying that you know, bringing exports men and women into the security industry may sound bonkers, but when you break it down, it's actually exactly the kind of talent and skill that you need to build a more resilient and a more of a sort of a diverse looking and feeling industry. So I'm really driven by the stuff that we do from an impact level. And I'm one of the things that keeps me awake at night is being able to measure that. And I'm as much a furnace on that, and as my team will attest to, you know, how much we can do, how much we can push the boundaries, so much so that we're looking at a way that we can get free resources and the tips and tricks that we give to our clients into the hands of those that need it the most. Because security should be and is very straightforward. It's a, it's a state of mind and it's also things that you can do in the next five minutes to protect yourself and those around you. So I feel really passionate. There's there's a few strands there that I feel like we're making a difference right now and I want to keep that, that, uh, that impact piece front and centre of what we do. Inherent to the security industry, Kate, and those people in it is keeping people secure and protecting people from what is essentially their own vulnerability and their own desire to be, you know, safe. Are you the kind of person that has, and and are the people in it, have they all gravitated because actually they're looking for safety themselves? Is there something in that when you see these, whether it's, you know, people think of security people and they think of physically strong people, whether they're big or small, men or women or anything else. The question I really have is though, does it occur to you that actually you wanted protection back in 2013, that as much as you wanted to see what this business was about, actually it was something to do with you? And if so, where might that have come from? And you still experience vulnerability in that sense? That is a fantastically multi-layered question. I think I would pick up on the four pillars that I believe exist within security. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the baseline of security aside, I think we have a sort of a physical, a digital, a reputational and an emotional kind of need across security. And the emotional need to stay safe and feel safe and psychological safety is being talked about a lot more in the workplace now. And I think bringing in the kind of work that the security industry does, first and foremost, the security industry is a very wildly varying fragmented industry. So we need to be very clear what we mean by that. But if we look at these individuals as being the front line of or working alongside other agencies to to protect and keep people safe, whether that's public safety or in the case of close protection and bodyguarding, the individual, I think you're exposed to so much to protect other people that you can put yourself second. And I definitely think if I look back to 2013 and doing my close protection bodyguard training, that I didn't realise the impact of thinking about and looking after other people. And it took a pandemic for me to realise that putting your own oxygen mask on first is something that I've had to hammer home to my colleagues in the industry. Because if you don't look after yourself first, then you can't help protect and support other people. But then let me me just jump in for a second, because I love that phrase about putting on your own oxygen mask first. And it's the thing I look at, you know, most of us are very bad at looking at the or listening to the safety drill as you get on a plane. But the only thing I care about is if I'm with my children is my children. So, of course, I go, right, where is it? I better know that. What does that mean in the real world for you? The metaphor is the oxygen mask. But what does Kate do to ensure that she is able to cope and, and be honest about what she's feeling about her own business or about life and all that? I'm just interested because you are front of the front line. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... Again, I go back to the ikigai. When you are in your zone and your flow, I guess 
what another person would perceive as being a lot of pressure and a lot of like, very sort of quick, I call them micro decisions. I'm making hundreds and hundreds of them on a daily basis. When that is amplified to being around someone else's safety, I take it huge. It's a huge responsibility. But again, the shift for me personally in the last couple of years is that, you know, advancing into my 40s now, there's never been more information about how you can embed tricks and tips into your your daily life. And I can bore any of my close friends will know that I talk about my aura ring and my box breathing and my meditation practice that I learned with the London Meditation Centre. I couldn't have built a business had I not had all of those tips and tricks embedded within my own toolkit. So I think I just keep my toolkit really sharp. I love what I do. And, you know, we do work in a in a way that is proportionate. I think if you're needing specific advice, particularly the pro bono work that we do, that can be really, you know, very, very emotionally driven. People don't have the resources to protect themselves. That, that for me, is a massive trigger, I guess. Maybe that goes back to, uh, you know, my father's upbringing and, and, and all of that. But I think because we have the tools at our disposal and because we work with the sort of clients that our average age now is 38, they want to know that they are putting money in a business that's helping them that then conversely is helping those that can't help themselves. And I genuinely think that the resilience that I keep in my own physical and mental health is something that enables me to, to sort of keep going and, and help others. But I think also on a business level, looking at how a CEO can replace themselves, that keeps me sharp too. I never want to be sitting on my role, the role of the founder. And I always call myself the CEO because I'm always looking at the right time to replace myself, that is also quite a good driver as well because I can't be complacent about my role. I'm, I want to hire better than me. And those are the individuals that I want to help to inspire them to say, Kate, you know, you were messaging at five o'clock this morning, you know, everything all right. You know, you probably need to, to leave early today. You know, and that's the sort of culture that I want to create around me, the friends and the people that, that I know. And even the clients that, that I work with now will all talk to me about the things they're doing to protect themselves and the first line of defense to protect yourself is to look after your, your physical mental health. And it's not something that I would have ever spoken about even sort of, you know, two, three years ago. It's because of this crazy time and this, this, this crisis-led time that we're living in that I realized that I am the most important person in my life. Stay with me for my final chat with Kate Bright, the most important person here right now on Jazz FM with Jazz Shapers. We've also got some music from Brazilian pioneer Marcus Valle. That's all coming up in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Kate Bright is my business shaper just for a few minutes more, and she's the CEO and founder of Umbra International. We were talking before about the last few years and the crisis and the the kind of the, the, the macro picture for all of us that has led to deeper levels of anxiety than we've ever seen across society in every in every walk of life and, and every age and uh, gender. None of us have been spared. You talk quite honestly as well about the fact that that emotional vulnerability and that importance of looking after yourself has shifted in the last few years. Do you think that you're 100% better because this has happened? Do you think that you think differently about vulnerability and safety? because of the last few years? 100%. I think anyone that said the last or any shift in life has not affected them is lying. And I think for me, it's been my everything time. And I don't know whether that's because of my age and sort of the conscious being that you become as you get older and the things that, the mistakes that you make and the, the sort of the time that you can use to reflect. 
But for context, I've never worked harder than I worked through the pandemic. When you are staring down the barrel of losing everything that you've furnished towards and ikigaied towards, uh, you know, in March 2020, I think you find out new things about yourself and you you sort of shift your priorities to what I sort of was uh, in my head, I, I'm very visual, um, the concentric rings of importance. So the inner sphere, the outer sphere, and then sort of the wider things that I can control, the things that I can't control. And I think that that experience of COVID, I would never want to go through anything similar. And I've said that. And then you go through other crisis moments. And, and don't forget, we backed onto that with the whole Brexit scenario, which for me as an Irish Bavarian, I also found existentially quite hard because of just wanting to always feel part of a community and you know, building a business is building a community. And I think where I would say the COVID pandemic time has been a shift for me personally is this idea of what is important, how I want to go and grow from these times. And I think it's always good to have a reflective moment on some of those times where we were told we couldn't do things. And um, for me, it's the pride of knowing what we could do and what we did do as a result. And and that care that we, as a business, were able to sort of transmit, not just to our client community, but also to embed some of the things that, as I say, are really important to me. And, and that was the time where that all crystallised for me. But I think also, just having chatted to you now today, your definition of a comfort zone is that there isn't one. I think you are only comfortable when you're not comfortable which I guess as a, as a leader and as a founder means, as you said, the CEO and the fact that you're always looking around. Is that kind of exhausting, truthfully? Or is that the thing that really keeps the fire burning in the furnace? If you're not pushing boundaries, you can't seek and find new land. And maybe there's a sort of closet Viking somewhere, you know, right back that's going and finding new, new places and spaces. No, I mean, I am I am relentless. I am always looking at ways that I can be better. I'm always looking at ways that I can innovate. Um, and the word innovation and security have never really gone together before and they don't necessarily go together that well because, you know, the going wrong bit of security innovation is is obviously not, not, not a good look. But I do think there is more that we can do and I, there's more that I can do and there's more in me. And I think I haven't had any of the formal training that one would get to run a business, lead a business. And so I'm, I think I'm always making up for the lack and the perception of lack that I haven't gone through a formalized MBA program yet. Um, and I haven't got those bits of sort of accreditation. I've come to things quite late. And so I think maybe there's a bit of me making up for lost time. Maybe there's me looking at an inspiration such as my father, who, you know, 86 years old, it's like, well, great, okay, I'm kind of halfway through. And you know, what What kind of gear can I go in next? And I think when you are then alive to what you can physically and mentally achieve and be capable of, you want to stretch it. You want to look at that neuroplasticity of what you can do to push those boundaries. You want to make sure it's sustainable, obviously, for those around you. Some of my friends would say that, you know, I probably push those boundaries uh, very often, but I do have good things in place and good people in place to sort of say, oi, you know, that's 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 enough and uh, um, an innovation too far. But I, I won't stop pushing pushing the boundaries. I think it's it's intrinsic to who I am as a human. Keep pushing, but also be kind to yourself because I think you've done fabulously already. And of course, there's lots more to achieve, but I'm sure you will. Kate, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Just before I let you disappear, and I'm thinking about the closet Viking going out, just fighting, waving, waving weapons in the air, obviously in, in, in peace rather than in, in the cries of war. Um, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Well, Cries of War, Nina Simone, Feeling Good. I learned the phrase glass three quarters full from 
one of my icon heroes, Dame Stephanie Shirley, Steve, who I know you've had here speaking to you. And I think what I love so much about this song is how it makes me feel, first and foremost. And to your point, you know, I've, I, I realise also that music plays a huge part in my sort of de-stressing and my switch off. Whenever I've heard this song and in whatever remix I've heard this song, and as a secret grade eight pianist as well, which is a whole other story, um, just the respect for the, the, the sort of the creation of this, the lyrics, the music, and the way that people like Muse and, and, and others took, took it forward, it actually really responds to my whole sense of innovation, but also that sort of iconic status that, that uh, she holds for me as a, as a singer. That was Nina Simone with Feeling Good, the song choice of my business shaper today, Kate Bright. She talked about looking at her own family DNA and it's saying the word graft and just how important it is to never forget how much work really goes into creating your own business. She talked about championing an industry that has not been championed before, and that is the security business. And she critically has identified in the last few years how important it is to put yourself first, put your own oxygen mask on first, because if you don't do that, you won't be able to help and protect other people. Great stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.